All right, good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 as we resume our series. Last week we took a break for our series and we enjoyed the uh, Contend Conference. We hope that that was a blessing uh, to you. Thank you again if you served during that conference and made that possible. And I just wanted to offer one more special thank you. And uh, he's going to hate the fact that I'm doing this, but I do want to say a special thank you to Pastor Bob who really organized and helped put on that whole conference. So we appreciate you, brother. It was a tremendous blessing. Now, as we're diving back into Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we look back to the teacher, to the Kohelet, to the thinker, to the the writer of this book, Solomon Ecclesiastes. By way of review, you'll remember that the main question of the book of Ecclesiastes is this, can human beings find meaning in this life under the sun without God? And Solomon has said the answer to that question is no. No, there is no transcendent purpose or meaning in this world apart from God. You have to have an infinite reference point. Otherwise, it's all hevel, it's all meaningless, and this affects every single area of our lives. Specifically today, he's going to talk about the area of work. How does meaninglessness affect the area of work? That's the question on the table for today. And so let me begin with a quote from uh, everybody's favorite sitcom, The Office. Maybe you feel about work how Jim feels about work. He said this, right now, this is just a job. If I advance any higher in this company, though, this would be my career. And uh, if this were my career, I'd have to throw myself in front of a train. Anybody feel that way about work here today? Once in a while, maybe not every day, but some days maybe you feel that way about your job. Hard to answer that question if your supervisor's like in the audience here, so that could be a little awkward. But I think all of us in some way, shape, or form can relate to this, this guy, Jim, uh, at the office from time to time. Now, why is that? The answer, I think, is, is in a concept that you're probably already familiar with that uh, years ago, uh, philosopher Albert Camus popularized in his book, The Myth of Sisyphus. You remember from your Greek mythology class who Sisyphus was, right? He was that character that was caught giving celestial secrets to mortals. And the myth said that the gods caught him doing that And what they did was they punished him by putting him in a position where all day long he had to roll a rock up this really huge hill, just keep rolling and rolling and rolling all day, every day. But then, just before he gets right to the top of the hill, about 10 feet from the top, it would roll all the way back down to the bottom. And this happened every day, forever. This was his punishment. Now, that sounds a little funny, But when we think about it, it's really not funny at all. (coughs) The point of that story, says Camus, is that meaninglessness is having to execute a pointless act from which nothing ever comes. And Camus said that's not just his conclusion about work, but that's his conclusion about life as a whole. And so for some of you, you can relate to that feeling when it comes to your career. You wonder sometimes, when it's all said and done, you know, what have I really accomplished here? Meaning, is there any bigger purpose? Is there any transcendent meaning to the work that I'm doing with my life? Camus said, no, there's no transcendent meaning. There's no transcendent purpose. I talk to a lot of people who struggle with that same sort of emptiness, and they think there's got to be more to this 
work, this life than I'm experiencing. I mean, get up in the morning, go to work, go home, watch TV, go to bed. Get up in the morning, go to work, go home, watch TV, go to bed. Have fun on the weekends. Is that it? I mean, are we really living or are we just kind of existing? Do we ever stop and back away to ask some of the bigger questions? Why am I working this job? Why am I here? Now, some people choose not to answer that question. They choose to basically ignore that question. But I think it's worth thinking about, at least for a few moments here, and so does Solomon in this section of Ecclesiastes. And some people say, well, Dave, I just want to live the good life. But what's the good life? Some people say it's looking good, feeling good, and having the goods. But you ask people who actually have the goods, and they say that they haven't found any transcendent meaning or happiness or significance with those things either. Uh, A few years ago, I was struck by this quote from actor and comedian Jim Carrey. Maybe you came across this quote as well. He said this. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. These are the themes of Ecclesiastes that Solomon discovered 3,000 years earlier than Jim Carrey. And so today we explore those themes with the passage from chapters 3 and 4. And so the title is The Struggle for Meaning at Work. As we move forward in the series, what we're going to discover is some of the less familiar passages in the book of Ecclesiastes. But there's a lot of truth here, a lot of wisdom here that I think we can benefit from. And here, Solomon is going to show us six different problems that we can encounter with regards to finding meaning in the workplace. And those six problems are on the screen. There's the problem of injustice, the problem of mortality, the problem of oppression, the problem of envy, the problem of loneliness, and the problem of forgottenness. Now, as a warning, this message, this passage is a little bit dark. It's a little bit despairing. And I promise, even though it's going to feel like a little bit of a slog, at the end, I will offer some hope at the end. If you will stay with me, don't leave early today before the hope comes in the message. It's coming. You just have to wait till the end. So that's where we're headed. And uh, before we do that, let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Uh, Your people, this church, your word, thank you for the privilege of looking uh, at what you have to say to us today in this book of wisdom literature. Uh, Lord, there's some passages in this this section that are confusing and difficult, so we pray that you'd give us focus, eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts most of all to accept, receive, understand, and be willing to obey what you have for us today. And we pray that you'd be with our speaker, for he needs you the most. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, problem number one, the problem of injustice. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 16 begins with these words. And I saw something else under the sun. Notice as we just pause for a moment those three little words, and I saw. That is going to be a key theme in this particular passage. He will repeat that again and again and again. Verse 16, and I saw, chapter 4, verse 1, again, I looked and saw, chapter 4, verse 4, and I saw, chapter 4, verse 7, again, I saw. The point here is Solomon has seen some things, but it's not good enough that he's seen some things. He wants us to see those same things as well. And so imagine, if you will, that we're going to take a guided tour. Imagine if Solomon is our tour guide, and he's going to say, there's some sights that I've seen, and I would like you to see these sights as well, and he's going to take us as a group to six different stops along our tour today. 
and we will make these stops along the way. So the first stop that he makes along our tour is a stop at the place of justice. He stops at the court of law. He stops where we all are familiar with Lady Justice, and we, we see the courthouse. And as we gather on the steps of the courthouse, and we say, Solomon, why have you taken us to this place of law? He's going to say, friends, it's because here I've seen some problems. And Solomon begins to preach to us as the teacher, and he says this, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. Meaning, even in the place of the court of law, Sometimes even there, we don't see justice. Even there, Solomon says, we see wickedness exist. There's a lot of examples of injustice in the world. There's a lot of examples of injustice in the workplace. There's the issue of favoritism. There's the issue of getting passed over for a promotion that you feel that you deserved. There's the issue of somebody being chronically underpaid. Uh, There's issues of gossip and backstabbing and and cutthroat practices. There's a lot of injustice everywhere. Now, as we stop at each site, at each stop along this tour, we are seeing something very serious, but really Solomon, the teacher, the one who gathers us together, he not only wants us to see the stop on the tour, but he also wants us to see ourselves. We might even see some sin that exists in our own lives, We will see some injustices that are out there in the world everywhere, but he also wants us to search our hearts to see if there's any injustice inside of there as well. There is injustice in this world. Even though we serve a sovereign God under the sun, sometimes justice does not take place on this earth. Solomon says this is reality. Evil men will sometimes get into control. The the Christian guy doesn't always score the touchdown. The bad guy doesn't always fumble the football. This is life under the sun. Solomon says, do you see this? In the place of justice, there's wickedness even there. And so how do we work through those kinds of issues? Well, once again, we have to look above the sun. The Bible teaches that one day God himself will balance the scales. He will right every wrong. One day God will judge this world with righteousness, Psalm 9, 8. This is what Solomon says in the next verse. Take a look at verse 17. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. There's that word time again that we saw a few weeks ago. And finally, here's a promise that one day the long, cold winter of injustice will come to an end and spring will be here. Now, sometimes we see justice in our lifetimes, and that is wonderful. The bad boss gets fired. The the, the corrupt politician gets outvoted or sentenced. The dictator fails, but other times it doesn't. But whether justice comes in my lifetime or through the court system or through natural means or it doesn't come in my lifetime, I need to believe with faith that God will judge everyone at the appointed time. And so Solomon, as he wraps up the stop here, stop number one on the tour in front of the courthouse on the steps, he says, here's the lesson I want you to learn here in this place of justice. The presence of injustice should not cause us to despair. Rather, it should cause us to trust God to judge. This is the lesson on the first stop of the tour. And to learn this lesson, we need to wait. 
To, le- to learn this lesson, you and I need great patience, don't we? And patience is a fruit of the Spirit. But when it comes to injustice, friends, Solomon says you must not allow a crisis in meaning to occur inside of your soul. Rather, you need to learn to wait on the sovereign God who is just and righteous in all that he does to return. And so that's our first stop. Solomon says, okay, back on the tour bus, we're going to take a ride over to stop number two. And as we get on the bus and arrive at our next stop, we realize that we are getting out of the bus at the funeral parlor. And here we will see the second problem that we can occur, that we can experience and that can occur in the workplace, the problem of mortality, the problem of death. We are mortal from the word muerto. We are people who are dying and passing away. This is what Solomon observes at this next stop. So he gets out of the bus and we gather around and he says, listen to me, the teacher. He says, I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. That's that word, hevel. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward, and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. And so as we pause and listen to the teacher at this second stop on the tour, and we're visiting this funeral parlor or this cemetery or seeing the gravesite off, off to the side, what we find here is the stark reality of death. And at that time, Solomon says, on the day of the funeral, you can't verify if that person's soul has gone up or if that person's soul has gone down. Instead, on that day, we are just like the animals. Whether it is the ugliest hyena you have ever seen in your life or the most beautiful Hollywood actor or actress, all of us are dust, and to dust, all of us return. Yes, I know we're made in the image of God. Yes, I know we're crowned with glory and honor. And we might be a little bit more civilized than our dogs and cats. And we might invent gizmos uh, to play with. And we might pop vitamins and drive electric cars. But even still, we can't do anything to change our mortality. Psalm 49.12 says, like the beasts, we all perish. Now, why is this the case? The reason is found in verse 18. Notice that word, tests. God is testing us. The word really means to expose. God is exposing us in the sense of bringing to light a certain reality. This is what death is communicating. From Genesis chapter 3 onward, the the purpose of death, the reason death exists in this world is to communicate to all of us, every single person, that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. The Bible says the reason for death is to remind us that we have rebelled against the giver of life. We have rebelled and are under the curse of God, according to Genesis 3. And God, through death, is making it absolutely clear to every one of us that though we wanted to be like God, we are actually not like God in this way. We are mortal. Now, different people respond to this in different ways. Some people uh, become totally bitter about this. Some people live in denial of death. Some people live in a state of dejection. Some people are overwhelmed with grief 
about death. Grief, dejection, bitterness, all of those are valid responses. And if there is nothing above the sun, those are the only responses that are available to us. But here the Kohelet wants us to respond in a very different way. And Solomon encourages us here as we gather in front of the funeral parlor to live in a certain way in light of this lesson. And here's what he tells us in verse 22. The lesson is found here. He says, so I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Now, frankly, between you and me, as I was studying this passage, that is not the wisdom that I was expecting right here. In light of death, I expected Solomon to say there's nothing better than that a man should break down and cry over this terrible reality of death. But rather, look at what he says. He says how you should respond is you you should get to work, and you should be glad in your work while you're able to work. In other words, Solomon says the presence of death, my friends, should not cause us to despair. Rather, gathering at this funeral parlor here today should motivate us to hope in God and rejoice in our temporary God-given stewardship to work. Work is a blessing. There's nothing inherently meaningless about work itself. Work is a good gift from God. Tim Keller writes about Uh, theology of work in his book, Every Good Endeavor, which I would recommend to you. And he says this, he says, the book of Genesis leaves us with a striking truth. Work was part of paradise. In other words, we are to accept our work as a gift from our creator and give it back to him as an offering and as a sacrifice to the one who gave us this gift. And so Solomon, as we're in front of this funeral parlor, gathers us together and says, the lesson I would like you to learn at this stop on the tour is this. Reminders of your mortality tomorrow should cause you to rejoice in your life today. So this is his conclusion. In a universe with death, please, please work hard all day. And then after you're done, enjoy the satisfaction of a hard day's work and thank God as you rest your head on the pillow at night for your job and for your family and for your food and for your paycheck. This will bring you great joy remembering that this temporary enjoyment of work is a good gift from God. And when you go home at night, enjoy a Reese's peanut butter cup bowl of ice cream as well. I don't know why that topic keeps coming up, but I think that's in the Hebrew. The original Hebrew is what Solomon. And even though we do pass away in the New Testament era, we remember the promises of Philippians 1 that says to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Even though we are mortal, we will live on in fellowship with God. Even if we pass away, we have our blessed hope, the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these things should remind us that we are frail and we need to turn in hope and faith and trust to God. This is what we sang earlier, frail children as dust and feeble as frail. In thee do we trust, nor find thee to fail. So the reminders of our mortality should cause us to rejoice in our lives today. 
And so Solomon says, back on the bus, I want to take you to another stop on the tour. And as we head to the stop that we're going to, stop number three, we realize that we're arriving at a sweatshop. This is the problem of oppression. This is a workplace where the work never ends in that place. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 4. As we get out of the bus and gather in front of the sweatshop, the teacher says this, and again I looked and I saw all of the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. Here Solomon stops the bus and he wants us to look at the crushing weight that is felt by those who are at the very bottom. He wants us to see the tears of the victims of oppression with no one to wipe those tears away. And notice in the passage, he says, the main issue here is it's an abuse of power. There's an abuse of power that's perpetrated on the vulnerable, on the poor, on the widow, on the orphan, on the refugee. There's so many types of oppression in this world and at the workplace. The breaking of child labor laws expropriation and authority seizing property from its rightful owner, stealing, robbing, defrauding, unjust profit made from a high interest loan. Many people work under the thumb of abusive and authoritarian supervision. This is the problem of oppression. Hebrew scholar Bruce Walkie points out that the Bible says the very definition of wickedness is people who disadvantage others to advantage themselves. And the flip side of that is also true. The very definition of righteousness is people who would be willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage others. This is the most gut-wrenching section of our passage today. And though this is uncomfortable, Solomon says, I saw this and I want you to see it too. Take a look at what's happening under the sun. And it becomes so unbearable for Solomon that he says, I can't even look at this problem anymore. In fact, it's such a terrible reality here. He turns to utter despair in the next couple of verses. Take a look at what he says. He says, and I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born who has never, not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Amazingly, here Solomon congratulates the dead for being less miserable than the oppressed. This type of sentiment is not unique to Ecclesiastes. The prophet Jeremiah and Job also basically say the same thing, namely that sometimes they wish that the day of their birth had never come. Namely, Solomon is saying that for those who are so severely oppressed and mistreated, it would be better off if they were dead. That's how horrible the oppression is. Now, I know this is difficult to read, but I actually love this book because he's honest. He's dealing with the real issues of this world. He's dealing with real oppression. And one day, I know, everything will be made right. We just talked about that. But that day is not yet today. And so Solomon says, get off the bus and look at the oppression. And if you and I are children of God, then the call upon our lives is that we are never to turn a blind eye to the issue of oppression. 
This is an important reminder for us as believers. Though it's painful, we are supposed to look at it. It is our job as God's image bearers to look after the oppressed and to care for the poor and the orphan and the widow. And we must remember that it is Jesus who said he will reward those who visit those who are in prison and who care for those who are oppressed. And so what does that look like? Well, it looks like at least two things. Number one, advocacy. And number two, compassion. Advocacy. Last week during the Contend Conference, we learned about the ministry of Alpha, who seeks to free workers in Pakistan from the slavery of the brick kiln industry. That is a good work that you, through your generous support last weekend, were able to set free those who are in slavery in Pakistan. Some of us can make a very big difference here. One commentator writes this, quote, the church needs more William Wilberforces, but it also needs quiet good Samaritans who are busy mending one wounded traveler, visiting one shut-in, adopting one orphan, and funding one refugee at a time. This is our calling, to be like our God and offer comfort for those who are oppressed. And the reason the Bible records issues of oppression is to communicate to us something very important. Namely, that when it comes to oppression, we need to be reminded that our God sees and our God knows. And if you've experienced oppression in your life, I want you to know, based on the authority of the word of God, that God sees and God knows. God sees and God knows. And here also is the ultimate comfort for the oppressed. Oppression is about power. But the Bible teaches that there is a greater power. And one day, he will right every wrong. And so the tour guide said it's time to get back on the bus and head over to our next stop. Here we're taken to a different stop, this time as the the bus driver drives over to a Fortune 500 company. And as we pull up to this particular business, we realize that we're being taken up to the Department of Marketing and Advertising as Solomon wants us to see the problem of envy. And here we're going to find a place that's constantly stoking the fires of comparison and forcing us to compare everything with everybody else, our cars, our houses, our clothes, our kids, our vacations, you name it. This is what Solomon observes next, verse 4. He says, here we are, and I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Look around at this place, at what Solomon is observing. He's observing the competition, and he's observing the motive underneath of the competition. The primary motive, he says, is envy. In other words, to climb to the top, some people feel like they have to step on someone else's head to get to the top. It's a zero-sum game. So for me to win, you have to lose. And we end up living in what I call the land of Ur. Have you ever been to the land of Ur? It's where there's somebody who's always richer or skinnier or smarter or taller or prettier or happier or hipper, or married-er. There's always somebody with some more-er. 
And this is what drives a lot of people's hard work, Solomon says, the drive to be better, the drive to be the best, the drive to be first. Like Ricky Bobby, we say, if you're not first, you're last. Why? Because it's envy. And often when we see other people succeed, deep down, we experience envy and jealousy, and it makes us feel worse about ourselves. And the flip side of that is also true. If we're honest with ourselves, there's an ugly side of envy, that when we see other people fail, deep down, We enjoy seeing the mess that they've made because it makes us feel better about ourselves. This is envy. Proverbs 14.30 says, Envy rots the bones. Envy is one of the seven deadly sins. Now, as we're going along for this tour this morning and we're seeing these different sites and we see these different problems in the workplace, what Solomon really wants us to see is ourselves which is a bit offensive. But I'll bet there's something here that we can all relate to and learn from along these stops. Each stop along the way is supposed to be a mirror. And when we look at it, it might feel like you're looking at a carnival mirror a little bit. You're not sure exactly how this represents you. But yet, if you look closely, you realize, I can see me here in this place. And those unsettling similarities are meant to press me to evaluate my heart and evaluate where I'm going to find ultimate meaning at, at work. And, and this passage becomes a cautionary passage for me. Often the reason behind our workaholism is because I'm placing too much meaning in my job. I'm placing too much significance on my possessions. But it doesn't satisfy Uh, This week, there was a sad video that went viral on social media of Tom Brady retiring for the second time. I remember years ago when Tom Brady won his third Super Bowl ring, and he actually said, there's got to be something else. Even though he said that way back then, it doesn't seem to me that he really found anything else. So what happened? He went to go get a fourth ring and a fifth ring. And a sixth ring. And on and on and on. And a seventh ring. And he's not alone, right? We've heard this so many times. Michael Jordan, too, came out of retirement because he had to get three more championship rings. So he has six rings. And he's not satisfied with that. You know, there's two guys, Bill Russell and Yogi Berra, that have ten rings. They have a ring for every single one of their fingers. What do you do when you get ten rings? I guess you go to your toes. And see, the sad issue with Tom Brady, the sad thing about his second retirement this week is now he's leaving the game after also sacrificing his wife and his family because idols always demand a sacrifice. And part of the reason was his insistence on keeping to playing football. And they were not on the same page about that. So he did this at the expense of his family. And the deeper issue, I think, is that he was finding all of his sense of meaning in his work. And it appears that all of his identity was wrapped up in the wrong place. Great football player. Really sad video this week. Why? Because that's not a solid ground for our identity. So what's really wrong with envy? What's wrong with envy is we completely lose sight of our neighbor. David Gibson says... In his book, Living Life Backwards, which is 
So far, my favorite book on Ecclesiastes. He says here in chapter 4, Solomon highlights the innate desire to get ahead of our neighbor rather than living gladly with the responsibilities that he or she places on us. So what are you saying, Dave? I shouldn't work hard? I shouldn't try? I shouldn't do my best out there and be competitive? What are you saying? I should be lazy? Is that what you're saying? Well, no, 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 that's not the answer. In fact, Solomon addresses that in the next verse. He says, this is what fools do. Look at verse 5. He says, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Now, that's a little bit of an enigmatic proverb there. And let me try to unpack what it means for you. In verse 5, he uses a rather grotesque image of self-cannibalism. Literally, the Hebrew says, he who folds his own hands eats his own flesh. That's not literal. You've probably never seen a lazy person actually eating themselves. But I'll bet, metaphorically, you have seen someone erode their sense of self-control, and then that erases their sense of self-respect. That's what Solomon is saying that laziness will do to you. The one who refuses to work will destroy himself. On the other hand, workaholism isn't the answer either. This is what he means in verse 6, two handfuls with toil. This is the person who can't stop working. Here, there's two extremes. On the one hand, we have the manic, busy workaholic, and on the other hand, we have the sloth who, because of their idle laziness, ends up destroying themselves. So in verse 5, we have somebody who refuses to work with any of their hands. And then in verse 6, we have somebody who works always insistently with all of their hands. And here Solomon is saying, I would like to exhort you at this stop on the tour to consider working with one hand. Consider a work ethic that's more balanced that will lead to what he says here is called tranquility, which is a fascinating word. The word simply means rest or peace of mind or a calmness in your soul. Again, David Gibson said, it's a word to capture the deep well-being of those who know their place in the world, content with the boundary lines of their life and able to enjoy the fruits of their labors with a cheerful heart, unquote. So can we drop anchor at this stop on the tour for a moment and ask ourselves a question today? How many hands are you working with? How many hands are you working with? This is a message that we need to apply, not today, but on Monday morning. Are you working with zero hands, one hand, or two hands? Those are your three options. Zero hands, that's lazy. Two hands is workaholism. Solomon says, why don't you work with one hand over here and over here get a cone with Reese's peanut butter cup ice cream in it? (laughs) That's the Hebrew. This is, of course, what the New Testament teaches. 1 Timothy 6, 8, if we have food and clothes, with these we will be content. This is why David says in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. There's nothing or no one to be envious of. I already have God. He can never be taken away from me. And because I have him, I have the secret to being content in all circumstances. So I can work with one hand. So Solomon says, good, I'm glad you've learned that lesson. Now come back on the bus. We have to make another stop. 
And as we get on the bus and we head to the next stop, we're going to find another problem at work. And this time, the bus is taking us into New York City as he pulls up right outside of one of the largest skyscrapers there. And we get off the bus and we get onto the elevator, all of us, all 500 of us. We get onto the elevator and we go up to the top floor of this one particular skyscraper and we arrive at the chief executive officer, officer's office. We, we arrive at the office of the CEO and we there gather around the outside of his door and discuss the problem of loneliness. So Solomon says, is everyone here? Here's what I have to say about this stop on the tour. Verse seven. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. So as Solomon gathers us all around to the top office in this skyscraper, he says, do you see the guy who works in here? He's made it to the top of the tree. The only problem is he's in there all alone. He's a total loner. This guy could buy dinner for everybody at the restaurant. The problem is nobody wants to sit with him. This section of the Bible reminds me of the sad story of the famous baseball player, Ty Cobb. Six feet, 180 pounds, exceptional abilities, one of the most passionate, possessed individuals that ever existed. Just look at those eyes. This guy's intense, right? He made himself, many believe, to be the greatest baseball player that has ever played the game, that has ever lived. But, but if you know his life story, you also know that in the process, he blew through two marriages, complete with restraining orders. You know that one time when his son was not doing well in college, he took the train down there and horsewhipped him. You know that his kids don't talk to him, didn't talk to him, and his wives wouldn't talk to him, and you know that he died an alcoholic. And he would go in his later years to sports banquets, and no one there would even drink with him. And guys would say, I played with him then, I knew him then, and I hated him then, and I hate him now. Ty Cobb in Georgia became very successful because he invested in two rather well-known companies in Atlanta. Maybe you've heard of them, Ford Motor and Coca-Cola. And so he died a very wealthy man More money he had than he could ever spend, but yet the last recorded words of Ty Cobb were these, quote, I am at the end of my life and no one is here. I wish I had made more friends. Sad story. But he's just one example of the problem of loneliness. Unfortunately, there are many examples of this same Thing. And so Solomon says, as we gather at the outside of the CEO's office, I want to encourage you here to learn the lesson. And the lesson is that you must also invest your life in other people. This is the antidote to the individualism of the previous few verses. And this is where we get that well-known passage in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. 
Look at it again with fresh eyes. This is where Solomon says, don't you see two are better than one? Because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So here Solomon gathers us together and says, I want you to learn the lesson that there's incredible value in relational support in your life. In verse 10, you got somebody to lift you up. In verse 11, you got somebody to keep you warm. In verse 12, you got somebody to back up against and defend yourselves. The point here he's making is, don't you see, friends, there's strength in numbers. And so if you're wealthy, don't hoard it all. Instead, invest it in other people. Be generous. Help someone else succeed. Make some friends. And so before we leave this stop, he gathers us together at the outside of the CEO office, and he says, I want you to remember the lesson here. And the lesson is this. Don't live for me. Live for we. This is the wisdom of mutual interdependence. Whether we're talking about business partners or working on a team or the pastoral leadership team or the plurality of elders or joining a small group at NBC and being seen and known there, there is safety in numbers. This transforms the way we think about our work. Uh, Tim Keller says this in his book, Every Good Endeavor, the question regarding our choice of work is no longer what will make me the most money and give me the most status. The question must now be, how with my existing abilities and opportunities can I be of greatest service to other people with the work that I've been given? Now that mindset will keep you from the problem of loneliness, but it will also keep you from all of the other problems on our stops today. This mindset will keep you from being lazy. This mindset will keep you from oppression. This mindset will keep you from envy and the love of money. And it will keep you from being all alone. Don't live for me. Live for we. And so we all nod our heads and get back on the elevator and we head on down to one last stop on the tour. And this time Solomon, the teacher, takes us to a familiar place down on the Jersey Shore. And we all get off the bus, and imagine it's a much warmer time of year. We all get on the sand, and we begin walking down Point Pleasant, down towards the water, towards where the, the waves are crashing in. And Solomon says, I want you to come to this place. This is called the place of forgottenness. The place of forgottenness. And he shows you at the, at the edge of the water a beautiful sandcastle that someone had been making for quite a long time. They clearly spent most of the day on this beautiful sandcastle. But Solomon says, I want you to look at this sandcastle as the high tide is coming in. I want you to look at it as it's being demolished, as it's slowly being swept away. Does everyone see this sandcastle? Now let me, let me explain to you what this sandcastle means. And Solomon, again, teaches us one more lesson. Verse 13. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later 
were not pleased with the successor. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now, that's a little bit of a confusing parable, but the main point he's saying is this. Here's a story about two kings. One is soon forgotten, and a young man takes over. But then Solomon says, he's forgotten too. This is what happens in succession plans. Even the greatest people are all forgotten. They reach the pinnacle of glory, and then they're stranded up there. Do you guys remember Sears in Wachung on Route 22? Does anybody remember the King George Inn down the road? Does, does anybody remember the big tree in the middle of Basking Ridge? Does anybody remember that there used to be an A&P in Dewey Meadow that my teenage daughter used to work at? What do all those places have in common? They're all gone. Now they only exist in our collective memories and maybe pictures on the internet. This is what Solomon is saying happens even to the most successful kings, even to the most successful people. Here in this last stop on the shore, Solomon is simply drawing attention to the short-lived popularity of the great. Again, what happened to Tom Brady? A couple of weeks ago, Exactly what Solomon said would happen to him happened to him. He got knocked off by Dak Prescott. And then what happened to Dak the next week? He got bumped off. And on and on it goes. And whoever is the current goat, whoever is the current greatest of all time, let me tell you, let me just break it to you, Solomon says, don't you see one day he's, his body's going to slow down? Don't you see one day he's not going to be able to throw the long ball and the guy on the bench is going to take his place and then one day he's going to burn out too? On and on and on and it goes. And each one, they keep losing it. Far too many sports analogies in this sermon. <laughs> Maybe you can't relate to this. But we all try to find meaning in the wrong places. So maybe for you, it's your own beauty. And you know that this too will fade. Look at what Halle Berry said. She said this, let me tell you something. Being thought of as a beautiful woman has spared me nothing in life. No heartache, no trouble. Love has been difficult. Beauty is essentially meaningless and it is always transitory. This is the problem of forgottenness that we saw on the Jersey Shore. And so Farrah Fawcett got bumped by Christy Brinkley, and then Christy Brinkley got bumped by Kathy Ireland, and then Kathy Ireland got bumped by Cindy Crawford, and on and on it goes. Wherever we find our place of meaning under the sun, it's all transitory. So where is it for you? Is it some, winning some competition? Somebody else will beat you. Is it your money? In the end, you're going to have to give everything away. In the end, those things won't help you. None of them will provide any lasting sense of meaning. And so the lesson of all of these stops, and specifically this last stop, is that we are all building sandcastles that will one day be washed away. And as we think about all the places that we visited on today's tour, we see here a problem that all of them have in common. If we try to find our meaning in our place of work, we are Sisyphus. We are all pushing that rock up the mountain, and one day that rock is going to 
flow back down the mountain as if we never did any work at all. Honestly, if there's nothing above the sun, there is no solution to any of these problems that we face in the workplace. And so the solution can't really come from Solomon. The solution has to come from one of Solomon's sons that would come many, many years later. This is not a problem that Solomon could solve. But the one who would come from the line of Solomon would tell us that there actually can be a greater purpose. There can be a sense of transcendent meaning even in your work. There is something under the sun. There is a higher reason to live. You can work for something bigger than yourself and your own little legacy. You can live for something greater than yourself. And that person's name is Jesus Christ. The one who comes through the line of Solomon, who comes to do the work that his father called him to do. The one who experienced injustice on our behalf, the one who experienced oppression and the envy of the religious leaders, the one who experienced extreme loneliness on our behalf came to save us from the penalty of this meaninglessness and the penalty of our sins, but he also came to redeem our work for us as well. And knowing him gives our life meaning and gives our work meaning as well. This is what's found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Question number one, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You were made to glorify God. You were not made just to live under the sun. You were designed to glorify the one who is above the sun. And when you realize this, you find real meaning in your work and real reason for your living. This is the message of the entire Bible. The Bible teaches that God created you and everything else for his glory. Colossians 1, for everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, under the sun, above the sun. Everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him, everything, all creation was made by him and for him. First Corinthians 10, whatever you do then, do it all for the glory of God. Friends, to sum it all up, there's only two ways to live your life. You can live your life for you, or you can live your life for God and his glory. And this is what Solomon is saying that we must recognize. You are breathing God's air you are using his gravity. You are using the gifts and talents that he gave you. This is God's world, and God does not mean for me and you to take his gifts without honoring him or worshiping him or giving glory to the one who gave these gifts to us. He means for us rather to use them in service to him, not for our purposes, but for his purposes. Remember what Pastor Bob said a few weeks ago? It's not your party. It's all about him. You know, years ago, there was a revolution in science called the Copernican Revolution, and they discovered that their whole model of the universe was like wrong. And they thought for years the earth was at the center, and the sun revolved around the earth. And everybody thought this, but then they discovered that all their little calculations would work out a whole lot better if they figured out the sun was the center of the universe, not the earth. This was like a major paradigm shift for the whole world. And what Solomon is telling us this morning is that we all need a similar paradigm shift in our hearts, that our work and our lives do not operate well when they're centered around ourselves. They operate well when we're centered around the person of Jesus Christ. Recognizing this provides us great meaning 
in our work. Because your job is from God. Your soil out there is from God. The harvest is from God. The sun is from God. Your skills are from God. Your talents are from God. Your abilities are from God. Your coworkers are from God. Your paycheck is from God. Your work is not about you. It's about God. Serve God. Live for God. Glorify God. Work for God. One of our church members sent me a quote this week from Pastor Charles Stanley, and it's kind of been sticking in my mind all week. And I'd like to finish today's message with this quote, just so that it bothers you as much as it bothered me. (laughs) Pastor Stanley said this, the wisest thing you can do is seek your heavenly Father's direction for the future. God's desire is that you spend your life and resources in a way that glorifies him. If you will obey him step by step, he promises that your legacy will have eternal significance. And you can sing, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Can you imagine a church full of people who really got this about their work tomorrow morning, that they really understood the purpose of their work was to glorify God? A church full of men and women and boys and girls who really, Monday through Friday, dedicated their work for the glory of God? Let's be that church. Would you pray with me? As the worship team comes, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for preserving this text I'm sure there's some here today or watching online who've been living the good life but not realizing that there's such a far better life, a life of purpose and meaning lived for you. And for all of us, we would all have to admit that we're in need of your forgiveness and, and we confess that sometimes we live for shallow living. Thinking life is about collecting possessions or having pleasure or achieving popularity. So I pray today that you would open up all of our eyes, not on Sunday morning, but on Monday morning, to what life could look like lived in service to you and your glory. A life lived for your purpose and your power, a life where we experience your tranquility and your peace, a life that's lived glorifying you. We ask that for Christ's sake and for his reputation. Amen.